Why do birders love Tallahassee, Florida so much? Simple, because so many beautiful birds love Tallahassee too. Located on two migratory pathways, Florida's capital city is one of the top birding locations in the country. And with nearly a dozen sites on the Great Florida Birding and Wildlife Trail, you can't turn around without spotting another live bird to check off your list. And once you put your binoculars down for the day, Tallahassee's world-class culinary scene and comfortable accommodations will have you rested and ready to do it all over again. Learn more at visittallahassee.com. Hello, welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. The 2022 Federal Duck Stamp Competition has been decided. Now, it feels like just yesterday that the 2022 Duck Stamp was released, and it was back in July, but the 2022 Duck Stamp Competition is to decide the 2023-24 Duck Stamp. And maybe someone in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service can get these dates made a little more consistent or intuitive. And I know that the duck stamp program famously has very little overhead. I feel like maybe a small bit of that money could be spent on clarifying which year goes with which stamp. It is the stamp that comes out next summer for the following fall and winter waterfowl hunting season, if that is less confusing. There were no shenanigans this year, unlike last year's John Oliver prompted game playing. And the winner was, again, one of the Houtman brothers, Joe, this time. His brother Bob finished third. No idea where Jim's contribution placed this year. They have something of a dynasty. If you've been paying attention, the Houtmans have made the duck stamp a sort of interfamily art contest adjudicated by the federal government and more power to them, I guess. Though there is certainly a very specific and distinctive aesthetic that is favored by the judges for these stamps. And the Houtmans, to their credit, have effectively nailed it. I think you know what it is. It's the sort of thing that you would see in the office of a dentist who is a hobby hunter. Anyway, Joe Houtman's Tundra Swan in-flight images of, of, of a piece of all this. It's, it's very nice, very accurate. The lighting is, is in particular, is, is really appealing. I can't say that the whole painting does much for me because at a certain point they all sort of run together, but I can appreciate the craftsmanship. The skill, certainly undeniable. Funnily enough, the last time Joe Houtman won, 2016, it was for his painting of a trumpeter swan, in flight, so maybe Joe has gotten a little pigeonholed. Swanhold, maybe. But as I scrolled through the Flickr gallery of this year's submissions, it was hard not to note that there's a little stagnation at work here. There are probably only four or five paintings that are of the sort that it's you know clear that US Fish and Wildlife likes. And every year the Hotmans provide probably three of them. Um, I, I have to wonder if some artists are less inclined to submit because of the dominance of the brothers. Um, even the non-Hotman names are a little repetitive. Since 2010, there have only been two first-time winners. All of the others are folks who have won the duck stamp competition before. I don't know. Maybe it's a problem. Maybe it's not. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service wants a certain kind of stamp, and there's a community of about a half dozen artists who can give it to them without, it appears, breaking much of a sweat. I'm, I'm probably not that audience anyway. But I do like to think that bird art is, is maybe more than just the hyper-realistic acrylic stuff that we see year in and year out on what is certainly one of the world's most effective conservation tools. Or maybe it's just an excuse to go back and rewatch the John Oliver bit from last year. You know what? I think I'm going to go do that. On the show this week, Audubon's recent Bird Migration Explorer tool is a fantastic compilation of the diversity of bird tracking technology and a stunning look at the scope of bird migration 
I'm joined by Melanie Smith and Chad Whitko, Audubon scientists who worked on the Explorer to talk about how it happened and how they hope people use it. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of September and the beginning of October 2022. We are nearing the peak of migration across the continent, and we've had some pretty wild vagrants in recent days. I will start in eastern Canada. I mentioned last week the passing of Hurricane Fiona uh, made landfall in Nova Scotia, which at the time of the recording was still pretty fresh. In the days after, we heard of not only two more white-tailed tropic birds at Cape Breton, but also Nova Scotia and indeed Canada's first record of Trindadi petrel, which was pushed close to the shore by the storm. Tube noses, indeed the holy grail of hurricane birding, typically only seen far out at sea. New Jersey also boasted its long-awaited first record of Kirtland's warbler in Cape May County, because where else? Amazingly, as news got out about the initial sighting, another Kirtland's warbler was found nearby, making two individual birds found within hours of each other, the first and the second for the state. Kirtland's warbler is one of the great conservation success stories of the late 20th century. With the raw population increase, we have certainly seen a commensurate increase in the number of extra-limital birds and birds seen on migration, though New Jersey isn't terribly out of range from what you would expect uh, for a bird that migrates between the central Great Lakes and the Bahamas. Those are the highlights of the week for a full accounting of the rare birds throughout the ABA area. Check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org RBA. You can also follow along with all the rare bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. It's maybe a bit cliche these days to say we're in the golden age of bird science, but that's only because it is incontrovertibly true. There are more birders, more researchers, more tools available to both of them to solve many of the great ornithological mysteries or just to marvel at the capabilities of birds. National Audubon, along with many, many bird science partners, have put a lot of this modern science in a sleek, simple package called the Bird Migration Explorer, a guide to the annual journeys of 450 bird species in the Americas. It is very cool. I'm joined by two of the principals involved, Melanie Smith, the director of the Bird Migration Explorer, and Chad Whitko, an Audubon outreach biologist, to talk about it. Welcome to you both. Congratulations on the launch of what must be a massive undertaking. Thanks a lot, Nate. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Um, it's awesome to be here, and it's awesome to talk about this release of the Bird Migration Explorer. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know this seems like sort of a simple question uh, to start with, but I think it kind of grounds us in what we, we, why this is such a big thing for people who, who like birds. Um, what do you find so fascinating about bird migration? When I see birds show up in my backyard, and this is absolutely enhanced by everything that we've been doing the last few mm -hmm. years, pulling these data together, I think of them as these little international travelers and uh, it's almost like I picture them with a passport and they have all these stamps from all the places they've been. And seeing the data has just really opened my eyes to something I knew was going on, but now mm -hmm. I can visualize it so much better. They are flying these just huge distances, weighing less than an ounce and making a journey that none of us as humans could ever do. Um, it's just fascinating. And then they show up and might just be this little tiny brown bird in your yard and they show up like everything's fine and they've been there all along. So it's yeah, just, it's, like it's, it's amazing. Yeah. There's really not much I can really add to what Melanie said. I'll just echo, you know, what she said is pretty much in line with what I feel about these birds. It's just incredible to see these birds on their journeys, uh, you know, 
wherever you are, whether you're in your backyard or some far-flung birding destination and seeing these birds, you know, en route from where they're breeding to where they're going to overwinter. It's just really spectacular. And it's amazing to think that we're just able to intersect time and space with them on these mm -hmm. journeys. Um, you know, I just feel fortunate every time that I have that opportunity. It just feels like a, a true gift to be able to bear witness to what's happening around us. Yeah, it it is really amazing. Do do you uh, do both of you like to travel? I, I, it's a silly question to ask because a lot of birders and nature enthusiasts like to travel just to see, um, just to see other things. I'm I'm curious because it seems to me that you know, one of the things that you know the traveling aspect of it is a, is an aspect that, that oh I hear a lot from a lot of birders and um, I it's almost like wish fulfillment <laughs> sometimes when you see these birds in your backyard and you know that they have been all these crazy places that you wish you could go to and see and i, I don't know it, it's it, when you think about these birds as individuals rather than populations and, and you see i don't know like uh even, even something as simple as like a, a white-throated sparrow in your backyard you think of the places that bird has been and what it's seen on its journeys it's just it's fascinating to me i don't know if you share that <laughs> yeah i i definitely do um i i definitely like to travel i'm certainly more experienced in, you know, domestic travel within mm -hmm. the States than I am internationally. Uh, but, you know, I've had that travel bug for a long time. And, you know, the birds themselves, like, certainly contribute towards that, that love. And it's really great to be able to, uh, in some instances, experience the places that these birds are going. Um, you know, getting to some of these famed migration hotspots and stopover sites and then seeing them that's and recognizing that the birds around us sometimes in our local patch are, are heading to these places. Uh, it's it's really it's a really great experience to be able to travel to some of these places um, and be around that as well. And I absolutely love traveling, especially, you know, to new places where you see birds that you've never seen before. Maybe you didn't even realize they existed if you're far yeah, enough away from sure. home. And like going to a hawk watch, for example, and seeing all of these raptors migrating over many times where I've thought about, I wish I was that golden eagle and I could just yeah. see what they have seen. And I wish I could uh, have have a good excuse to to fly far south every winter and um, take my time, spend days, weeks, months just traveling the countryside. Yeah. Oh, I would love it. Yeah, I I, I just returned from a uh, recently from a trip to Panama, and podcast listeners will probably know this, and they're going to have to tolerate me talking about it for at least a, a couple more weeks. But um, w one of the cool things about being there was seeing the birds that I think of as like North American birds or U.S. and Canada birds. Um, in in Panama, like uh, the northern water thrushes and uh, black Bernian warbler and, you know, pectoral sandpiper and all these birds that I think of as birds that I see in my backyard, in my state, in my county, and seeing them in these places, it really gives you a sense that these travels these birds are making, these voyages are, are it took me forever to get to Panama and, and these birds are doing it every year, twice a year, stopping in these places. It's just amazing to think about. It absolutely, and I so here in Alaska where I live, mm -hmm. I have a resident northern water thrush that comes and oh, nests nice. every year in my yard and then has its chicks and it's hopping around and foraging and showing them what to do. And I just feel so privileged to have that bird there and I yeah. get to have these close up interactions with it and watch it closely and then 
it's going to travel really, really far down to maybe yeah. it's going to Panama and all these other people's areas along the way. Yeah, who knows? It could have been the one that I saw behind a gas station in uh, Eastern <laughs> Panama. Yeah, who knows? It could, it could have been your bird. <laughs> <laughs> it could be. And then the other thing is that they don't stay long, at least you know where mm-hmm. I live, especially because I'm so far north. They make these huge journeys, put out all of this energy, all this risk, and then they don't even stay very long. Yeah, yeah. It's wild. It, it's amazing. What was sort of missing from the bird migration literature, I guess, that that you wanted to complete with this big effort? I'll give a first answer to that. Mm -hmm. This project was born out of a conversation among a former leader at Audubon and a board member at Audubon. And they started talking about what if you could take all of the the massive amounts of bird data that we have Mm -hmm. now in this golden age you referred to and put it all on one map, what would you see? What would you learn? And how would you be able to invest in conservation in smarter ways than we've ever been able to do before? You'd start to look hemispherically. You'd start to see, uh, gain new insights, see new patterns, and ultimately do better work. So that idea to bring together these already really massive and incredible data resources like eBird, like the USGS banding data set, like MODIS, and put them all together and make this most complete picture we can with science right now. That was the goal. Yeah. And it, and it's beautiful too. I mean, I just have to say, like going to the, the explore.audubon.org and looking at the the map and kind of scrolling across. I was, the, I didn't even know it did that. Like I was sort of surprised as I moved my cursor across from west to east, the, all the different individual species popped up and you could see the movements of not only groups of birds, but individual birds in some cases of, that are moving around here. It's, um, it's, it's sobering to see the scale of the problem that we are kind of tasked with with solving uh, and sort of protecting these birds, but also just like, it's hard not to feel amazed at, you know, how this happens year to year, every year for a millennia, more than yeah. a millennia, so many, years, like who knows how long. And that, uh, you know, I think you're referring to the, uh, the landing page map. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You know, what's really amazing about that is when we start aggregating the, you know, tracking data for all these different birds, is how you actually can start seeing, you know, the outlines of the geographies themselves. Yeah, for sure. You could take the maps away and you would still know where the land is and where the water is. It's very cool. Yeah. yeah. You, you'd see the outlines of North America. You'd see, you know, major migration corridors like the Mississippi River. Uh, you know, what we tend to think about is the, the major flyways. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, you use the word sobering, and I agree. It, it's a really sobering uh, picture of what's happening around us. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've had the fortune of, you know, birding a long time. You know, I, I claim to be a lifelong birder. And, you know, with a project like this, you're, you know, as somebody who's involved in it, you're, you're certainly heads down through every mm-hmm. step of this, right? And then when we go through the process of developing some of the elements that make up the Explorer, and you see this for, you know, these images for the first time, uh, it's mind-blowing. You know, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. for somebody that's been around it for a long time. And it, it really puts the perspective of migration around us uh, in new light. Where did all of this 
Where did all of the data that informed this Explorer come from? Because it has to be just just a massive amount of, of information that you've consolidated here. Many partners helped us and our founders as well of the Bird Migration Explorer. There are abundance data, tracking data, and connections data. And primarily the abundance data is coming from eBird status models. Mm-hmm. We have range data that also comes from eBird and BirdLife International. It's a combination of those resources. The connections data is from the Bird Banding Lab and from Genoscape, from the MODIS network. And the conservation challenges data are from a number of different places like NASA, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, Chad, I'm sure you have a lot you'd like to say about the tracking data. Yeah. So one of my, you know, principal uh, responsibilities was trying to discover and, you know, acquire the tracking data that that makes up a lot of the the maps that we see. and the amount of data that's out there is just staggering. There, you know, it's like you you dive into it and you have an idea that there's going to be a lot, but yeah. when you start kind of pulling it together, you start seeing that there's there's just a lot out there. And um, you know, I was looking just earlier today and looking in. Uh, we have a database that kind of manages all this data, and it's something like 1,500 data sets that we've identified so far. Uh, you know, from 900 plus data contributors, data holders. Now, mm-hmm. not all of those data have made it, you know, into the Explorer for various reasons, but it, it comes from a wide uh, range of individuals across many different sectors. You know, there's people in academia, there's people in state and federal jobs, nonprofits, people, you know, that just do consulting work. Uh, it comes from all over and all over the Americas. You know, a lot of it obviously stems from, from North America itself the origination of uh, the tags and where they're deployed. But, you know, some of them are certainly coming from outside of the U.S. and Canada as well. It was not known to us when we started how many data sets existed, how many species had been tracked. Um, That was a big part of the process, is figuring out what's out there, who has it, would they like to share it with us for this purpose? And ultimately finding out how many species have been tracked. We didn't actually know the answer to that. No one knew the answer to that. And that's been kind of a, a sub project to make the bird migration explorer happen was figuring all of that out. Yeah. When I, as I was growing up, as I was a, when I was a young birder, one of the big conservation kind of watchwords uh, that was very popular was this idea of migration corridors. I'm sure you remember that too. That was like the big thing. We have to protect the Mississippi corridor, the Atlantic flyway, the the Pacific flyway. And one of the things that really struck me when I'm when looking at this, um, looking at this map is how many species sort of crisscross across the, what we perceive as being these big corridors. And, you know, I, that's not to say that the idea of these corridors isn't, or these flyways isn't still a very useful way to kind of think about bird migration, but how much have we learned about how birds really move in a way that is different than what we were taking as sort of gospel, even as recently as, as 20 years ago. We often talk about it at, you know, at work about the, the concept of flyways Mm -hmm. and, you know, it, it tends, you know, we've come to realize that they're, they're useful for kind of informing 
some conversations, but they're largely not biological in context uh, in many ways. You know, right. they're, they're for other, other, you know, reasons for how we come together and maybe talk about conservation, for instance. Um, but yeah, as we look at, uh, you know, the tracking data that's come in, you know, we realize that while there are some clear-cut instances where some species might truly follow what we think of as the flyway concept, you know, many are are crossing over those those flyways, uh, many flyways, or going across these boundaries that we've we've put up to fit some type of state-based map. Um, and, and I think it really highlights that, you know, the ge geopolitical boundaries that we kind of talk about all the time, which are important to some degree for conservation, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the birds don't really follow that. And so <laughs> right. um, it, it really, I think, helps to uh, establish and, and ground us in the fact that conservation uh, needs to kind of cross over these boundaries, uh, not only within places like the U.S. and flyways, but also hemispherically. Mm -hmm. If you squint your eyes and look at the map on the homepage, <laughs> yeah. you can kind of see flyways. You can. Yeah, no doubt. But you also really clearly see that there are not edges and boundaries to those like we commonly talk about. And if you if you look for a flyways map online, you will find them. Right. And everyone's yeah. a little different. <laughs> and just out of curiosity, just this week, I pulled all of the tracks off of that homepage map that cross alaska and that cross texas and that cross florida mm -hmm. just to see what it would look like and every one of those has tracks that go to what we would call each of the four flyways yeah yeah so it's just so mixed it's uh it's there and it's not at the same time yeah, it's like a like a almost like a spider web of, of bird trails that are just crisscrossing the continent all the way down uh, through the Caribbean into into northern South America. We've kind of talked around it, but I, I think the work done by you know the Audubon programmers and analysts uh, is as interesting as the actual bird science and the movement that we are seeing here. There, there's something to be said for sort of presenting this information in a way that is really intuitive and and useful for people who I don't know might not be as engaged in birds and birding as, as we are, or perhaps, you know, listeners are, I don't know why people would be listening uh, to this podcast if they weren't engaged in birds and birding, but who knows, who knows, who knows who's listening. Um, but, you know, I look at this map and I see something that can be, you know, incredibly useful as an outreach tool um, to, to reach people who are perhaps, you know, don't live in the world of birds. Um, is that sort of one of the, the ways that you hope to use this map to encourage people to to show them the scope of migration and to show them the places that sort of need to be you know focused on for for conservation protection. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. the The bird migration explorer has what we we say we have two main audiences. Mm -hmm. Granted, it's kind of everybody. It really is everybody. But <laughs> everybody's in, in to, those two audiences. Yeah, incorporate <laughs> one of the. They two. are really, yeah. uh, but you know, to to focus our efforts um mm -hmm. we talk about birders and bird curious and mm -hmm. then conservationists and advocates and there is this opportunity to engage the bird curious mm -hmm. much more that with this kind of tool to bring them into the fold of the things that a lot of us that have been birding for a long time knew about and get excited about and start showing them why is this so cool 
and, and it is cool. I mean, I think it's cool from a you look at this map and you're immediately aware of what the, what's going on. Like it's really well done from that perspective. And I, I don't know if that was that obviously that was the intent when you're going into it, but the people who are actually tasked with putting this data um, and making it something that is you know visually appealing have done a, a fantastic job. And um, I imagine that is a ton of work. <laughs> it has been a ton of work, absolutely. And yeah. so, so many people were part of that. Yeah. So Chad and I are lucky enough to get to be here to talk about it. But we are part of an army of cartographers, data analysts, uh, web developers, uh, all sorts of folks, you know, communications. Um, it, it's a very, very long list. And cartography was always... An, an important element that from the very beginning we've been making maps, testing them, and improving them because making this beautiful to look at mm -hmm. is a, a big part of what makes it engaging. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of birders are sort of obsessed with maps in the same way that they're obsessed with birds. I don't know if that's true about you. Does birding feed into a map interest or do maps feed into a birding interest? I think they sort of feed into each other. But um, anyway, that's all very nicely done on that end. But I, I think a lot of you know conservation efforts are told with um, with stories, right? Um, there's there's only so much the data can do. People need to sort of know why they should care about a certain thing or or a, or a given place. Um, are there any stories kind of in these maps uh, where birds are going, what birds are doing that you want to be able to tell with this information to encourage people to make good conservation decisions or become advocates? Yeah, that's a really great question, and. I think when anybody looks at the Explorer for even just a moment mm -hmm. and opens themselves up to what they're seeing, I think that there are countless stories that are unfolding. Mm -hmm. And we not only want to tell that through, you know, what is visible in the data, but also through sometimes even like written stories as well. And so mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we are trying to do is to work with researchers uh, to highlight their uh, contributions to the Explorer and their actual research. And so uh, one of the things that I've, I've done as well as other people on the team is to, to work with researchers and say, hey, your data is, you know, you have this amazing data on X species. We'd love to talk about it yeah. and bring the researchers in to talk not only about technologies uh, that, you know, have come into play with tracking these birds, uh, as well as the conservation challenges that they face along the way. Um, but also the unique stories that they've uncovered as well. And so, you know, we, we highlight it not only through the data itself, but also through uh, written word whenever we can. There are a lot of stories here, you know, and that includes from where birds are originating and perhaps the conservation challenges across the breeding range, you know, to these individual hot spots or stopover places along the way down to, you know, wherever they end up. A great way to get started in finding your local story is to go to the locations section and mm -hmm. put in where you live. Every one of those maps is a little bit different. We've taken actually millions of data points for bird re-encounters that come from banding, tracking, MODIS, and Genoscape to build out these location connection maps. And you put in where you live and it will show you all the places across the hemisphere that your local birds have been re-encountered. Oh, that's cool. It's just a st one story after another. If you start I clicking know. around on that map, like I find that olive-sided flycatchers from here in Anchorage are flying to Peru. Yeah. Wow. That's another bird I saw in Panama. 
and I was like, "Wow, where did that that bird came came a long way?" I'm, I just I just typed in uh, my hometown, and it's got maps all the way from you know northern Alaska all the way down into Bolivia, which is yeah, that's really neat. Wait, it's a really nice way to make that connection that the birds that people see in their backyards are birds that are making these sort of extraordinary journeys and are doing these extraordinary things, oftentimes without people even realizing that they're doing them. Right, and because it's no longer just a static range map, you know, where you see it and you say, well, my bird could end up somewhere throughout this whole range. It's literally your local bird flew to this other place, and we know that through data. And it makes it that much more real and that much more personal. And in terms of a reason to build this tool, we really hope that that gives people a stronger sense of stewardship for those mm-hmm. faraway places. I can see that. When you click on locations you're connected to, you'll also get a list of conservation sites. And it's it's another way of showing people when your birds leave where you are, they go and they depend on this other place. And so you're connected to it too. And why does it matter that there is a, a conservation project right. in Alaska, if I live in Texas? Well, because your birds go there. And once you can start to see that, you get a whole new level of appreciation for it. Yeah, they don't just bury themselves in the bottom of ponds and and, uh, lakes like people thought they did. (laughs) Right, they don't fly to the moon. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, It's it's, it's neat that you mentioned that because I'm I'm really stunned by the movements of birds that we don't think about as moving much. Um, I was at the beach this past weekend with my family, and we had a, a nice house that kind of looked out on the marsh uh, behind the intracoastal waterway. And so I spent a lot of time on the balcony with my scope, kind of watching the birds that were moving by. And and the the most common birds that were there, as you as you might expect, were great egret and and snowy egret. And uh, those are birds that people across the continent are probably going to be somewhat familiar with. And uh, one of the things that is amazing about it is that I, I pulled up great egret on this map, and you find out that the great egrets that may breed where I live in, in North Carolina are not necessarily the ones that overwinter here. Like they don't stick around all year round. They'll go to the Caribbean or they'll go to Central America or they'll go to North, all the way to Northern South America. And I would never know it because the great egrets that are here in the winter look exactly like the great egrets that are here in the summer. But those individual birds are completely switched. They're completely different. And I think, you know, sort of recognizing that and realizing that is it's it's just it's it's sort of mind blowing, right? Because then you're realizing that even these birds that we think of as as a constant presence in our yard and our lives um, are still moving in ways that are pretty extraordinary. Yeah, I think uh, that was one of the the biggest things that happened to me looking at some of these maps as well as somebody's been birding a long time. Mm-hmm. It's a realization that you know there's a changing of the guard more than we realize, you know, yeah. at, at our at our local place, um, and it really uh i think helps to change our perspective on what these species are are dealing with on an annual basis mm-hmm. now it's not uncommon right to to go to places and just see that constant presence of birds but not know that the the birds that you'd seen all summer are actually gone and yeah, it's, right. it's birds from another uh part of the continent that have kind of replaced them and that's i think also a really important understanding uh to have when it comes to conservation Mm-hmm. You know, that, you know, the the places that we are connected to matter to the species we see, whether we think they're the same individuals or not. Uh, these birds are encountering a lot of different things along the way, uh, probably more than we realize. Yeah, 
for sure. No doubt. No doubt. Um, so what questions do you, as, as sort of migration researchers or even as sort of migration enthusiasts, um, what questions do you, do you still want to answer about bird migration? And, and perhaps along those lines, you know, what, what questions do we need to answer about bird migration? And I, I guess I think of those things as two different things, but you know, they, don't, they don't necessarily have to be. Um, what, are, what are still some mysteries out there that you, you want solved or need solved from a conservation perspective? The big, big one is the three billion birds lost over the last 50 years. Yeah. Two and a half billion of those were migratory. Mm -hmm. And we need to understand why did that happen and what can we do about it? And so that leads us to the conservation challenges part of the Bird Migration Explorer. When you put all of the data together across the hemisphere, and look at the footprint of human activities and environmental changes, that's another very eye-opening experience. Mm -hmm. It's surprising to see just how extensive the footprint is, mm -hmm. but then it really does help explain the 3 billion birds lost. When you put those two things together, you can start to see how all of these little, sometimes little, individual different types of developments and landscape changes eventually add up to the Americas being right. very developed. And when a bird is migrating, we keep talking about how, how wondrous and fascinating it is as a birder, but when they're migrating, they're just running into this thing and then that thing. Obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Yeah. <laughs> And you start to see how those things add up cumulatively through the number of different types of challenges that they mm -hmm. face and the long distances that they're covering. The big question we need to answer is where are the key places that these birds are being lost? And how can we be working better through international partnerships to start solving these big problems? Because, of mm -hmm. course, it probably goes without saying, but what birds need is what people need. So that's the whole theory of change behind this. It's, it's, it's not just about birding, which is wonderful, right? <laughs> it's also about protecting the environment in the way it needs to serve people and their livelihoods and to serve birds. So that's the big, big question. I'm sure, Chad, you have a number of things you've discovered along the way that, that you wish we knew in data gaps in terms of individual species and so mm -hmm. on. What, what, what do you say? Yeah, I mean, you know, as you're answering that question, Melanie, one of the first things that comes to, to my mind as far as answering these questions and others mm -hmm. is that, you know, even though when you look at the Explorer and you realize how much data is out there, there are still tons of data gaps. You know, um, there's a lot of species that haven't been tracked, you know, something like half of our migratory species, you know, haven't been tracked in, with any concerted effort. Um, and even those that have, you know, there are uh, geographic gaps in where birds are originating from, where studies originate from. So there's just a lot of uh, unknowns still for some of the species we are tracking and also a lot of the species we haven't tracked. Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that we need to throw uh, a 
tracking device on every bird that's out there, as cool as that might be for something <laughs> like this, uh, it's to say that, you know, there's opportunities for researchers moving forward to really uh, be selective in, in some of the work that they're doing. And um, there's opportunities for filling data gaps that can help yeah. build up the picture uh, towards what Melanie was was stating, you know, and helping us find these important areas. You talked a little bit about um, international partnerships and all this this need for working with people to to get this sort of information. Um, so, who who were the partners that were that were most useful for for putting this project together? We have nine founding partners in addition to Audubon, and they each played a different role and worked mm-hmm. with us throughout the process to build the Bird Migration Explorer. They provided a lot of data and a lot of expertise. So if I could, I'll just tell you who they were. Yeah, Birds go for it. Canada. So Birds Canada, they gave us MODIS data. Love and, Birds uh, Canada. And Bird Conservancy of the Rockies. And mm-hmm. their role was uh, particularly around the partners in flight watch list, conservation concern information. Bird Genoscape Project with the genetic connectivity information. BirdLife International, of course, is... Is, is everywhere. Yeah. And they, in particular, gave us range data and consulted us quite a bit on the, the threats, what we call conservation challenges, part of the Explorer. The Cornell Lab of Ornithology with eBird. ESRI, the global GIS company, that's the technology that this is built on. And they've also been with us from the very beginning helping us with implementing the technology and also design of the maps. Georgetown University, that's uh, been a partner of ours along with the Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center. So that's the Migratory Connectivity Project that you must be familiar with. Mm -hmm. And those folks partnered with us to identify tracking data and access tracking data and build partnerships with researchers. And then the last one I didn't mention yet is MoveBank, who of course is another very key partner. That's where the tracking data is managed and stored. And that really facilitated us working with researchers to acquire uh, data and manage it efficiently. Each of them has been an important thought partner, and uh, we absolutely couldn't have done this without them. Very much a partnership effort. Yeah, that's great. I'm going to make notes and um, see if I can talk to those people for future um, <laughs> EVA podcast interviews uh, down the line. Um, well, thank you so much, uh, Melanie and Chad. Melanie Smith is the director of the Bird Migration Explorer, Chad Whitco, and Audubon Outreach Biologists, both of whom were involved in this Bird Migration Explorer. Please go and check that out. It's explorer.audubon.org. It's, it's well worth your time. You can sink a lot of time into it, just like uh, playing around with the data that's available here. Good luck going forward. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having us. It's really been great talking with you. Yeah, thanks, Nate. It's awesome. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the ABA with your membership. There are a lot of benefits. Not only our magazines, discounts, partners, opportunities to travel with us, but also the feeling that you get when you are contributing to a bigger and better birding community in the U.S., Canada, and beyond. 
You can get information at ABA.org slash join. I want to make some special shout outs, some mentions to Preston Mui of Berkeley, California, Philip Rowland of Bloomfield, Connecticut, Kirk Waterstripe of Traverse City, Michigan, and Ethan Marsland of Blackhawk, South Dakota, who notes that via the podcast, he was introduced to the concept of a spark bird and that his is white breasted nuthatch, which is a great one because if they ever split it three ways, as some have advocated for, you get three spark birds. Thank you so much. Welcome to the ABA. Executive director of the ABA and executive producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who hopes that birders don't slip up the URL and end up at the bird mitigation explorer at some wildlife control company. Technical production is by John Lowry, who considers the new eBird exotic species map to be something of a bird invasion explorer. Additional help with social media comes from George Munez, who is one of the few male birders that I know without facial hair, making him a bird clean shaven explorer. You can find us online at ABA.org, on social media, most everywhere, as American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. I I like to collect soccer slash football jerseys with birds on the crest, which makes me something of a bird-emblazoned explorer. Questions, comments, can go to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. See you next week.